Is this a dream? No, it's not a dream. I'm an angel. Why would God send me an angel? Because God knows that everyone needs a little coaching now and then. I'm loving angels. I saw an angel. All angels say, Hi, and welcome to the Super Angel Podcast, the go-to podcast for angels backing the next generation of European unicorn founders. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our community at eu.vc. Today, we're happy to welcome you to Eduardo, a Spanish tech entrepreneur and angel investor. He founded Keldot, one of the top online booking platforms for hospitals in France, and sold it to NEHS Insurance Group. Eduardo is the managing director of Secret Fund, an undercover entrepreneur fund based in Paris. If you're an angel listening in and wanting to get closer to the European angel scene, do not hesitate to reach out to us. We'd love to connect and see how we can play together. And now, some words from our beloved sponsor. Vaban from Carter is the easiest way to launch and run your syndicate. Our end-to-end platform automates your back office so you can focus on the things that matter, supporting the next generation of entrepreneurs and building your network. Angel investors are the fuel to innovation, and we've created the Atom SPV to allow for more deals, more ownership, and less fees. Backed by Carter, the leading fintech infrastructure company, will be with you all from fundraising to exit. Investors on our platform have raised over $2.5 billion in global investments for companies including Revolut, Bolt, and SpaceX. Welcome to the Super Angel, Eduardo. We are so happy to have you with us. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm, I'm super excited to be here. I must say I was so positively surprised I managed to persuade you, Eduardo, to come to the pod. So I'm super excited to get you out of the shadows. Thanks for joining us. So let's get started. I mean, would love to hear your story, your background, and what got you into angel investing in the first place. Sure. So I was born and raised in Spain, actually, a small town called Bilbao. I was actually surrounded by entrepreneurs. My dad was an entrepreneur. My granddad was an entrepreneur. So I... I actually was kind of like a, maybe destined to be an entrepreneur at some point in my life, but I didn't know. And uh, so I, I ended up studying engineering in, in London, did a double diploma in France, then went into renewable energy before it was cool in 2008. And I actually got into tech, I think by the weirdest way, it was um, in an investment bank focused on tech that was doing a fundraising and M&A for entrepreneurs. My first deal was Captain Train that Index did in, in, in pre-seed. And I remember meeting uh, that team and I was like, wow, these guys are amazing. I want to be like them. I want to get into this world. And, and that was probably how I kind of like got into this. And then after 18 months doing deals, I was like, okay, this is boring. I don't want to be a banker. And so I, I went on to uh, start my first company with two co-founders, which was Keldoc, a medical booking platform in, in France focused on hospitals. So basically we raised funds from Alvin, Angel, scaled that to gathered about 20% of the French market and then we sold the company to a big insurance group called the uh, MNH. And it was at that point where, um, I mean, it was, it was kind of a rough entrepreneur journey in the sense that my dad was very sick throughout the whole period. So I was weekends in Madrid in the hospital, weekdays in, in hospitals all over France, trying to convince hospital directors to go into the new age of uh, medical booking appointments online. And it was, it, it was tough, to be honest, because it was, I mean, the, the two worlds kind of blurred in. But when I sold my company, I was like, okay, 
I should start a new company. And then I, I had this chat with my mom and she was like, I don't feel you. I, you're not optimistic. You don't have the energy you had before you started the first one. So maybe you should do something else. And, and I think it was my mom's that actually um, got me into angel investing because at that point in time, I, I told myself, okay, what can I do? If I'm not going to start another company, I'm not going back to banking. That's for sure. It was then that I said, okay, I have a pile of money. I have no interest in spending it in anything um, flashy. So let's just put this money to work with uh, the, the people I like. That's how I actually got started. And where do you get started, right? Like you decide that and how do you get into, into the weeds of the ecosystem and, and start interacting with people? Like if you, if you take a step back and reflect, is there anything you want to share on that note? Ever since I got into the investment banking, I started meeting founders and I love kind of like challenging them, helping them out in the stuff that I knew about. I think I was doing the prelude to angel investing way before I even started Keldoc. I was just helping founders out, connecting them with someone else, helping them find an employee, helping them do their deck, free help, um, free advice. And I think that eventually got me to getting intros from other founders and just rolled into that world and then I couldn't stop it. I think between 2016 and 2018, which was a period I was a, a full-time angel investor, I, I must have seen 1,000 companies and I invested in only 30 of those. I was very, very, very lucky. The one that actually triggered the investment. But but yeah, I mean, it was quite natural. There was no point in time where I said, ah, I want to be an angel investor or I want to be like uh, this guy who's an angel investor. I, I think it just gradually got into that. What changed from the first period where you then concluded, ah, this isn't for me, this is boring, I want to start a company, to then after it's going back to investing and saying, ah, this is actually for me, this is actually cool. Well, I mean, I think the main difference was I, I was a banker, right? So I wasn't, I wasn't really investing the money. So I was seeing the entrepreneur. I was uh, kind of like learning everything about the company. I was amazed about them. I really wanted to work with them. But then the deal got done. You get your fees and then ciao. And then another founder comes and I'm like, no, 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 I like those guys. I want to stay with them. I want to see what happens. I want to see if the company actually succeeds or not. And so it was quite frustrating. And, and then when I, when I came back as an angel investor, it was completely different because I was often the first check in and I pretty much never sold in secondary. So I was just really, really committed with the founders and on the same boat in the sense that since I only wrote that first check, I almost never did a follow-on check. I, I almost always had the same vision, the same kind of like um, incentives that the entrepreneurs had. So to put an example, if, if an entrepreneur received a term sheet for 10 million at a 50 million valuation or a 5 million at a 25 million valuation, I could actually tell the entrepreneur, take the 5 million. That's a better investor. You'll be happy. If I was doing a follow-on investment in that, on that company, the entrepreneur would turn to me and say, yeah, of course, man, like you want the cheaper price. And, and I think that that was a, a bit of my mantra from the beginning. I wanted to be in the trenches with them, helping them out and kind of like being as objective as possible. I mean, there's obviously some other episodes down the line where you can have a conflict of interest, but I think 99% of the road, except maybe M&A, um, you can actually be super aligned with the entrepreneur. And that's what I love doing. And Anthony, can I pull you in on that one? Because that sounds a lot like things I've heard about your style with Cocoa. Tell me a bit about your reflections on the same model. Yeah, with Cocoa, we like that purity of the model, right? I mean, first of all, by being an angel versus a fund, right? For, for me, I had been a lead VC for like eight years or so, right? Number one, the moment you're an angel investor, they're not pitching to for term sheets. Completely different conversation. We love that. You're aligned with them. You're by their side, right? That the relationship of trust you can build is exactly what we're playing for with Cocoa as well. And we believe that kind of gives you access to the very long term and 
actually gets you very, very close to the founders themselves. And that's so rewarding. But that connection you built. It is, right? And if you think about it, we do all the hard job for getting the smallest check, but it is actually, someone told me once that, you know, the, the most of pre-seed and seed investors actually do it for the passion of being by the side of the founders by design because it's the most unscalable thing, right? If I just wanted to make <laughs> loads of money, I could sit back and do Series C and do large checks. And so, yeah, we've gone to that extreme with Cocoa. And I think to add to that, you know, we see that that positioning of alignment is very valuable. It only comes uniquely by that structural incentives alignment. And so we do like that purity of the model that Eduardo mentioned. So we also don't do by design from that fund like follow-ons, right? Or by design baked into our model. I am knee deep in the VC space every day. And VC common wisdom is do an early ticket so you can turn your pro riders after it or, or double down when it goes well. I hate that wisdom, to be honest. I, you know, there's not that much of de-risking happening in most startups from pre-seed to seed. And for that reason, you might as well, you know, take your bet early and then put all the money as early as you can where you get the highest stake as well. I'm curious to hear your take on that because the common wisdom really is the opposite, right? Of course. But I mean, I think uh, it's, it's a trap. I mean, in the sense that there's always an ingredient missing in that wisdom, which is reputation. Your reputation is probably the most important thing as an angel investor, as a VC, because if you do ruin it or if, if, if you start having a bad reputation, I mean, there's so many side effects that come. You start receiving less deal flow. When you actually get the deal flow, it's harder to get in cap tables. And the problem is that it is true that with absolute winners, it would make a lot of sense to kind of like double down in each and every round after your first round. I think Peter Thiel famously said his worst investment decision was not doing the Series B of Facebook because he thought it was, I mean, too expensive and whatever. And that's probably true. I mean, if you if you kind of like isolate the best company in the portfolio and then say, yeah, I should have doubled down on that one in Series A, C, Series A, Series B, and maybe Series C and even D. I mean, if, if you're talking about Google, you probably wanted even to like participate in the IPO or, or even Amazon. But at the end of the day, you need to ask yourself, why are you doing this? And also, even if you're looking at from from a like 100% economic equation, if you're a fund and you do follow on, Most of the founders you've backed expect you to do a follow-on in the next round, whether you've been high-performing or not. So it would make a lot of sense to say, okay, I'm only following on on the Facebook or on the like that super deal. But the reality is that most funds end up following on on maybe 50, 70, 80% of their portfolio. And then all that cash gets diluted into companies that are not that exceptional anymore. So I, I kind of like two approaches. I like either not doing follow-up at all or doing it all the time and kind of like being out there and saying, we're going to support you. We're at least going to put pro rider or we're going to put double our pro rider in each and every round. I think first round does that. Point nine does that quite a bit too. Uh, there's a few funds that are there and, and they kind of like made their reputation from it. We'll back you. Even if you're not the number one horse, we'll back you. And I, I find that that's amazing too, but it's it's a different model. Again, this is common wisdom, right? You don't then lead the next round. You don't go in and set the terms of that. You follow on someone else's terms because you don't want to, you know, be then bumping up your own portfolio. Where, you know, I'm always like, yeah, yeah, so that's what I'm afraid of as your LP. But at the same time, I really want you to leverage your position. If you want to put more money in, then do it before anyone else are ready to and do it on terms that only you can get because the founders love you for what you've done and what they want to do with you in the future. I think that there's a whole flawed, you know, view on common wisdom. I I think Eduardo has touched on all of the relevant points. Like in the end, you're playing for the model at the position you want to be. So remember that it's a long-term game. So whether you do Parado or not, it says something about your positioning, the access you want to have. But also 
it comes with both swords, right? If everyone could perfectly pick their winners and only invest in their winners, of course, that would make for better economics. That's not most of the times the case. In a bull market, you didn't even know and the valuation was 10 times higher and three months later and you had to do so. <laughs> you then get the reputation. So you need to do prorata for your reputation. So you sometimes have to put bad money after bad money. So there's many sides to it. At the end of the day, there's many different ways of doing venture. As long as you have a model you're optimizing for and systematic around that, I think that's what matters more. And what do you enjoy also? Like at the end of the day, there's people that actually enjoy being that hand that helps the founder in their next round, et cetera. I think Anthony and I, we help the founders a different way. We kind of like help them build the deck, the narrative, help them with the intros, help them kind of like understand VCs because it's very different when you've got a pre-seed only with angels or with angels and micro VCs. And then you go on to kind of like a, the big leagues with seed and series A funds. And, and how do they think that how does a partnership work? How do you get across the line to get a term sheet at the end? How do you negotiate? How do you choose your VC? All those questions, I think you're, you're much, much, much more relevant to kind of like answer them and, and walk the founder with them if you're not participating in the, in the next work. And that's what I enjoy doing. I think Anthony does too and Garmin also. You also need to be authentic and kind of like choose your battle, choose where you're good at and where you can help the founder, I think. Any few or one you want to share with the audience that uh, a particularly memorable deal that you've done over the time? Okay, I'll, I'll tell this one. I'm, I'm purposely going to kind of leave the, the name because it, it was, I, I think it was the funniest deal I, I committed to. I remember this was back in 2016. So this guy called Sasha calls me up and he was building a social app. And basically, uh, he pings me with, with this graph of like zero to one million users faster than Facebook, Twitter, or any other social app that was out there. And I was like, whoa, I'm a treat. I want to know more. And so Sasha tells me, come to the office. Let's grab a coffee. And so I walked to his office. The office was, to be honest, really not, not that glamorous. It was, it was really uh, a very uh, kind of like a like dark building. There was almost no light. It looked like a cave, basically. So I get into the cave and I see Sasha, Genesi, uh, and Aptu, all the co-founders. And we basically get talking and I'm like, okay, guys, okay, let's get to the, like, the real stuff. How did you get to 1 million users? And then Sasha looks at me and in a very kind of like detective way, like almost like if I was a police. And he's, he says, come upstairs. And so we start going upstairs to this shitty mezzanine they have up top. And then I see like about 50 smartphones connected to a computer. And I see the smartphones flashing all over the way. And I'm like, what is this? And he's like, yeah, and you see that computer? Basically, it's orchestrating all the smartphones and it's pinging people on all other social apps. So basically the competitors of these players and telling them how cool our app is and bringing them to our app. I was like completely blown away. So I said like, dude, I'm committing. I don't care how much revenue you're doing. I don't care how much you're raising or the valuation. I'm in. And yeah, that's probably the deal where I was like uh, the most taken off and where kind of like I didn't need to learn more. I just like loved the team. I, I said, if they manage to do that on their own, what else can they do if they have some money on the bank account? Tell me, I mean, interacting with people like that, backing people like that, going through their ride, what would you say uh, has given you both personally, but also professionally? I think my biggest takeaway was personal. It's kind of like making friends, not that I needed friends, but really connecting with people very deeply because with people like, uh, like Sasha, I was there for the good times, but I was also there for the very, very, very bad times. And I think that's when you really make the bonds and when you really kind of like connect with those founders. And that's why they recommend you to other founders. And that's why you get a reputation. But getting to meet 
those people are getting to kind of like uh, confront my ideas, be challenged by them. I think I've, I've gained so much. So I have to say the people, the founders, that's, that's the number one personal takeaway I get from angel investing. And the second, from a professional perspective, I think I gained a lot of perspective. Uh, when I was a founder, it was the grind. It was like, okay, we need to sell, we need to... And I never had this kind of like 10,000 feet view where you go above and you see how other founders function. You see how they think. You see how they challenge you. And so I remember at the very beginning of annual investing, I was like kind of like trying to transpose my learnings from my startup onto every single startup. And very quickly, I realized I was stupid, that I had so much to learn from them and I had so much perspective to gain. And I think today, probably 90% of the lessons I give to founders, I learned from other founders. The 10% delta is the lessons I kind of like, the, the stuff I failed at, where I can definitely tell founders, don't do that, I did it, it was a mistake. I love both those points. And I think it's incredibly important to note exactly the last part that you said about not, you know, taking your own views too much into angel investing and forcing it on founders, because that, that, is, that is the path to hell for most investors. There's an analogy with that that I love. It's like, you're not a football coach, you're a boxing coach. What's the difference? A football coach, is he's going to select the players. So he has a lot of power. He's going to be the one saying, okay, the striker's going to be him, or the goalie's going to be that. A boxing coach, he can train you. He can be there between the rounds saying, look, man, hit him with a jab in the, on, on the left side, or be careful, he's hitting, a, hitting you in the head and you're not covering yourself. But once the bell rings, the founder goes back to the ring. And so you can only advise them. You can only prepare them. You can only... But the moment you start getting into that ring with them, it's a recipe for failure, if you ask me. Oh no, not about the thesis. First question here is really, could you just give us the grand view on your investment strategy and thesis? How many investments have you done? How many investments are you looking to do? What, where are you focusing, both geo and vertical and so on? To be honest, when I started, I didn't have a grand thesis or, or anything like that. I would say to date, I've done 120 investments. I'm kind of a generalist because I, I, when I say generalist, I have to specify I, within the software and hardware realm. So my strategy is very, really quite simple. It's, it's based on three parameters. First of all, do I understand what the founders are building? And do I like the world they're imagining? That kind of like factors out any biology chemistry play just because I had known nothing about that. I studied electrical, electronic and electrical engineering, studied computer science, but outside of those realms, I know nothing. And I've, I've actually passed on really, really nice companies just because I, I couldn't understand if this was really something amazing or not. So that's number one. Like, do I understand? And also, do I think it's good for society? So I, I didn't back companies that were doing supplements for vitamins and stuff where, where I, I thought maybe... This will help some people, but it can also go wrong and it can also harm a lot of people if, if it's not done properly. So I tended to kind of like stay away from businesses where I, I was afraid it could degenerate. Number two is basically how much upside is there in this? Like how big can this be? And this is a question some of the great investors ask themselves, but a lot of people forget. They always think about the downside. They always think of like, this can fail and this, there's this risk and this risk and there's too many risks and this is going to fail. But the fact of the matter is like, if there's no, there's really no risk, there's probably not that much of an upside to go and get. So I, I really like thinking about upside. It helps me a lot thinking, what if everything went right? What if 
they really managed to do something amazing and capture 20, 30% of that market. And that helps a lot because, I mean, it, at the end of the day, your downside is always going to be the same. It's your investment. Your upside is very different. Each deal is, is and it's very hard to calculate, you know, especially if we see, because sometimes a founder pivots, sometimes they add uh, layers of a product that you couldn't even imagine that they could be there. But I think it helps to just kind of look at the category as a whole and kind of like be imaginative. Okay, what if that goes right? What else could be added? And then and this kind of like build a, a, an upside thesis on, on, on that specific company. How do you think about market sizing and also taking kind of market timing risk? I also think that, you know, as VCs, we've just about upside potential. A lot of angels do and should, some don't as much. A lot of it is about scalability and what it could become if all stars align. Some of it is about looking at today and where it could go. Uh, and some of it has to do with the time dimension as well. I don't know if you have any specific views on that. I, I know a lot of investors have different ones. So, I mean, to be honest, I do not think of it too much from, I know it, it sounds when I say upside potential, everybody thinks, yeah, that's what you need to do. It's a return, blah, blah, blah. I don't really think that way, which goes with my third factor that I look at, which is, will I enjoy working with this human being for the next 10 to 15 years? Which is today it's become pretty much the number one criteria because I have 120 investments. And so each and every one kind of like dilutes my time. So I really want to make sure that I'm building a cool relationship with someone I like. And so when I think about upside, it's, it's more of like, how impactful will this idea be? And how many people can I touch or how many people can this founder touch and me indirectly help him touch? I don't think, for example, can't remember what VC back Google, but I don't think they could possibly imagine what Google is today. Or even Amazon, even it's an even better example. Who could even imagine AWS when like even when they when it IPO'd? It's impossible. But there was something about the vision of the founders. That was huge. I mean, Google was, they had this indexing all the data in the world in their DNA. That's huge. I mean, is there a limit to that? It's very, very, I, I like it when it's hard to imagine a limit where you're not thinking about how big it is, but you're, you're kind of like blown away by, but wow, that's huge. I don't know how big it is, but that seems like a, a humongous idea. And when I'm blown away like that, I just go for it. So I, I don't spend that much time saying, okay, bottom up top-down calculations, because once you get there, you're making a lot of assumptions that are very, quite frankly, very hard to make. Airbnb, another example, like what percentage of the population are going to want to go sleep at someone's place? I don't know. Who could know that? And like back in the day, it's very, very hard. But what you could be blown away by the fact that, wow, every single house in the world could host someone and every single person in the world could be hosted by someone. The, the idea is wild. The, the, like, when you think of the upside, it's wild. And, and those are the, the ideas that kind of like go inside you and you're like, you, you can't stop and you, you have to commit and you have to go for it. I think people look at it many times in isolation and they lose the, the human part to it, right? In the end of the day, like, is this founder obsessed to go after that? Do they have what it takes? And so can they dream big? Of course, you know, if you have too many headwinds to it, it will be a challenge. But like, I'd rather always back someone like that, that will find the challenge and they will come at it in the best way possible. And if not, we'll go again at it in a second venture than otherwise, right? But what we was going to touch on, you said on the number of investments you've made and, you know, now being even more conscious of investing in companies that actually, um, you know, you really enjoy spending time with the founders. Like, how do you think about portfolio support and managing those volumes of investments and, and supporting those founders? There's something that has helped me quite a bit, which is I've done a few boards, but I generally never go on boards. And the reason why is that if you're doing a board, 
in the early stage, often you have boards every month or every two months or maybe even every three months. But still, I mean, if you count the number of investments I had and say you have four boards a year, I mean, you pretty much have no time whatsoever. And so my superpower has been WhatsApp. And WhatsApp, I mean, it's not to make sure publicity or advertising about WhatsApp, but it's more about like the asynchronous nature of WhatsApp where you can chat or you can voice note someone or you can send a file to someone and then whenever they have time, they can get back to you. And it's at the same time, it's super fast in terms of like you get an answer quite fast, probably faster to ring up someone, but still they need to be available. Maybe they don't have the time to think about the subject. So I think WhatsApp has been my main way I managed to cater to such huge volume. And also knowing where you can help. I think I focus most of my help in two areas. One is excellence in hiring. And number two is excellence in, in funding and in kind of like fundraising. So excellence in hiring, it comes from my past. I think at Caldoc, at the very beginning, we made a lot of mistakes hiring. And that cost us a lot of money. One of the first things I do when I invest is I do a kickoff with the founder. And I kind of like expose to them a method for hiring, a method for A++ hiring. So... How do you source candidates? How do you interview them? How do you kind of like, once you've started to, to like a candidate, how do you vet them with other CTOs, VP sales, VP marketing that are very knowledgeable? How do you close those candidates and seduce them? I spend a lot of my time seducing candidates, like candidates that have four, five, six offers on the table. I go on a call, which is an interview, but it's really not an interview. It's just a, a call to kind of like sell them the company and make sure they understand what a huge opportunity they have if they actually join that company. And so as long as you know what you're good at, where you're going to help those founders, and that you have a scalable medium to deliver that, I think it's doable. And then you can scale even beyond the 120 investments. Another thing that has helped is that some of those companies have gradually either sold. I think I have about 20 companies, 21 companies where I've divested. What's funny is that a lot of the founders, some of those exits were in secondary. And a lot of those founders keep begging me for fundraising, keep begging me for recruitment stuff. And I'm super happy to help them because they become friends. I think the way I manage is that. And another thing I would, I would definitely say is that along the line, I've helped so many people that when I actually ask for a favor, so let's just say I helped find a CMO for a company. So that CMO was super, super grateful. When I asked that super CMO that ended up being one of the iconic CMOs in France or whatever, to spend an hour with this up-and-coming CMO who wants to understand channels, wants to understand how they structure their department, what team they've hired, wants to understand the, the nitty-gritty of how they work, they say yes. And so it's not Eduardo doing all the work. It's Eduardo's network of people that he's helped before that are doing all the work. And it feels so good. I mean, because at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's kind of like a community we've built. And uh, I love that. How about you, right then? Because... 120 investments, it sounds like, you know, you, you're then doing asynchronous, uh, uh, you know, riding with them as much as possible. So are you also then ready to do global investments all over Europe, all over the place, or are you more focused on friends? I think my deal flow comes from my network. And since I started in France, I would say 85% of my deals have a French angle. By a French angle, I mean either French companies, often with foreign founders like uh, Moroccans or Tunisians or people from everywhere that have come in to, to study and or work in, in France. And then the rest is kind of like a serendipity. My friend X, with which I went to college at Stanford, is starting this. 
or my friend Y or other angels that have seen that I kind of like, I, I really sweat it when I'm an angel and I really help the founders that invite me to round. I've invested in France, UK, US, Spanish. I think Ger- I haven't done German. I think I, I was going to do German company, but there was this notary problem and I ended up not doing it. But I'm, I'm open to invest all over the world. But the thing is that it is much easier for me to vet a founder, to source that deal flow. There's so many things that come from having built that network. And that network was in France, although I'm Spanish. I was born and raised in Spain. So people are like, why are you investing in France? You're Spanish. You speak English. Why didn't you go to London? So people think it's, it's, it's a very weird, uh, <laughs> a very weird person. But at the end of the day, it's just that I, that's where I got into this. And from that network, the opportunities came. Of course, I'm open. But the reality is that, yeah, today I would say maybe 70% of my deal flow has a French angle and 30% is kind of like either mostly US, Europe, and a little bit of Israel. But I, I haven't really touched Asia or Eastern Europe. It's mostly UK, France, Germany, Nordics. I'm very interested in Spain, actually, because I think there's a gap, a bit like in France in 2010, where, where there's a gap between valuations and kind of like the expectations that people have on Spain and what you actually see, the, the, the companies you actually see. But yeah, again, I'm, I was taught, I was born and raised in Spain, went to an American school since the age of three, learned French since the age of eight, German since the age of 14. So I was really kind of like raised in a way to be an international person and to have no boundaries, no uh, limitations on the people I would connect with. Just to touch on the international point, then downstream of you. So thinking because one of the things you really do for your portfolio companies is helping them with intros. How do you think about building that network? Because oftentimes the downstream investors to you will be international, I met. It's much more challenging, but the fact is that today, since I've, I mean, I've been doing this since 2000, I mean, I was a banker in 2010, then started in 2012 as an entrepreneur, 2016 angel, 2018, I started my first fund. The main added value I've, I've earned during that journey is that today I'm connected with most international. I mean, the U.S. is quite an exception because there's so many funds, you just can't be connected to everyone. But the most notable ones that are investing on a global scale, I'm connected to most. So I can help them on that aspect. I think funding is not a problem. It's much harder to help them on the hiring. I can help them on the hiring methods, but it's, I mean, in France, I have a superpower, which is I know that company is sold, so I know all these C-level profiles are going to go away. You should chat with them. And then I have these kind of like back doors to get amazing talent before anybody else. I don't have that in the US. I don't have that much in the UK. I, I really have that in France because I'm just connected to a lot of the ecosystem. I'm curious to hear how, because, you know, we're building LP syndicates to allow more angels to invest into venture funds and start building their, their, their growth diversification that way, but also strategic relationships via those tickets. But I'm curious to hear, how do you think about venture funds and how you work with them and also even LP investing? I would have trouble being part of a, of a VC, of a traditional VC with Monday meetings, et cetera, et cetera, because it's not my nature. I like being agile and I really like being, um, being myself with entrepreneurs. And the problem with a partnership is that you can be yourself, but then at the end of the line, the decision is taken by the partnership. So as a job, I, it's not for me. As an LP, I think I've only LP'd in two funds. One where I can't say because they're under NDA, blah, blah, blah. So it's a very prominent US fund. And one which is Fabric Ventures here in Europe, who's a, a fund uh, focused on Web3. And I think I invested only because I, I really enjoyed talking to Max Merch. 
who I think is one of the most, most knowledgeable persons in Europe in Web3, generally, I do not get the same satisfaction from investing, from being an LP, just because I don't really, I mean, I know uh, it, it sounds hypocritical, but I don't really do this for the money or for the returns. I do this to kind of like see the future with the founders, help them build it, and then kind of like those friendships, all the stuff that they end up doing, it makes me proud and it makes me happy. And I don't get that happiness by being an LP just because the relationship between a VC and an LP or a GP, sorry, and an LP is very different from the relationship, I say, from my point of view, that a founder has with a VC that backs them. And I like the four, the latter. I like the, the relationship of a founder and a VC or an angel. I don't like that much the relationship between a VC and an LP, a GP and an LP, where you have to be constantly saying, okay, yeah, the returns are going to be bad and defending your your portfolio lines and saying this one's going to be great or this one's going to be the fun returner. I don't like talking about how many X my investment is going to be. Nobody knows. And it's, I mean, spending hours talking about what IRR or what Moeek you're going to have at the end, to be honest, is something that, I mean, it's important. I mean, you're, you're an asset manager when you accept the money and I'm not saying you sh people shouldn't do it. I'm just saying it's terribly boring for me and I don't like doing that. Definitely also, yo, I think, Many angels will share your view. And especially, that's also why I, at least personally, I'm driven to, to, to doing our LP investments very much for the, all the learning that's in them. But that's a completely different story, right? Um, but just as you said with Fabric, right? They are at the forefront of Web3 and there's a lot of learning to be made there. So yeah, I, but I definitely get what you're saying. Out here learning more about them angels, are you? So uh, I know we might have touched upon a few already, uh, but from... All those amazing rides and, you know, stories and journeys, having invested in all those amazing founders and looking back, if you had to share three core learnings uh, with the audience, what would those be? One of these core learnings I knew when, before I started angel investing, just because I had been in the ecosystem, which is basically diversify. I know a, a few people that have done some concentrated bets and that have really made very, very successful angel careers. But on average, I think it pays quite a bit to diversify, specifically if you're angel investing early, just because it's so, so, so hard to predict. And also because, let's just say, if you have a, a million to invest, if you have 30 tickets instead of five, in terms of probably there's so many more chances of not losing your money and not being gutted and disgusted by the asset class. So, I mean, if you think you're passionate about it, yeah, definitely diversify. You'll meet a lot of cool people and you'll probably have a better chance of not losing your money. For a long time, we've been saying, ah, angel investing is amazing asset class. You're going to make so much money, but people forget that you can actually lose your money. Even if you make money, sometimes it takes a long time before you actually, you actually make it. The second lesson is about ticket size. That I didn't know when I started angel investing. So I think what's funny is that my 2016 to 2018 angel portfolio, the biggest ticket I wrote was my only write-off. The smallest ticket I wrote is my highest performing company. So unless it's the only way to get into a company you're super, super excited on, like for example, if there's no allocation, let's just say you want to put 30K in 30 companies, but this company only lets you in if you put a 20K ticket, that's okay because otherwise you wouldn't have gotten in. But if not, don't try and kind of like game the ticket size based on the excitement that you have when you're going in because Number one thing I've learned in angel investing is that when you invest, you know nothing. You think you know a lot of stuff, but you know nothing. And it, it pays off to be very consistent and always put the same ticket so that when that one 
really goes up and starts uh, growing, you have a good return from that. And I would say the last one is put your reputation before greed. This is something I would say 95% of angels don't do. When does this kind of like spark up? Let's just say a founder gets an M&A opportunity and the upfront valuation at which he exits, it's not that amazing, but he gets this humongous sweet deal in earnout. Most angels and most DCs and most people will jump to the ceiling, scream, say that you're not a good person, say that you're such a greedy bastard and I don't know why I backed you and blah, blah, blah. And what I've learned from doing this, from feeling that sometimes, because sometimes you, you actually feel that way, is that it's much, much, much better. My grandfather used to say, la última peseta que es la gane otro, which means the last euro, give it to someone else. And what happens is that if you learn to kind of like just pass and say nothing and say, okay, if that's the way you see things, I'm okay, I'm gonna sign, there's no problem. I think at the end, you might be a little bit deceived by the founder because you helped them out during the journey and because you don't think it's really fair at the end that he gets such a sweet deal compared to the measures that were backing them. But at the end, it's his choice. It rarely leads to a better deal for you and it generally leads to a bad reputation, which kind of like has so many consequences down the line, as I was saying earlier. So I would say it's much better to kind of like say, okay, I don't think that's the right thing to do. I didn't do that when I was an entrepreneur, but if you want to do that, I'll go with you, I'll support you, and I'll sign and I'll do whatever. It's something a lot of VCs and a lot of angels forget to do, and sometimes that can ruin your career. I've seen that quite a few times. Well, just one follow-up, conscious of time, and then we go to quick fire rounds. So, I mean, the question is diversification, right? What is enough diversification? Thinking about that kind of systematic check size uh, portfolio construction for you. What's too concentrated? What's too volumes-based? That would be great to understand how you think about it. So first thing, I'm no expert and I, think, I don't think anybody is. I, I remember, I don't know if you guys remember uh, Dave McClure from 500 Startups. At the time, he was like a huge advocate of a huge portfolio size. In my first period as an angel, I did 30 investments and I think I invested about a million euros, uh, more or less. In my second period, which was within Secret Fund, we did 66 investments out of a 20 million fund. But I think, I mean, to answer that question, you need to unpack Another question, which is very important, which is what strategy do you want to have? Do you want to lead? Do you want to follow or do you want to collaborate in those rounds or not? And this hits in with one of the things I'm most obsessed at as an investor, which is hit rate. Out of the deals I want to get in and how many do I actually get in? I don't think most people in this industry calculate that rate. I, I do. I'm at about 95%. And it's not because I'm exceptional or because my reputation is the best because there's so many amazing people that can invest that I mean, I'm definitely not in the top of those people, but it's often to do with my ticket size. If you have a reasonable ticket size that, I mean, and this is, this is very dependent on the stage you're investing. Or for example, the strategy of secret was 250K checks, which virtually meant we had no competition. There was no deal where we couldn't get in. If it was angels doing the deal, we could get in. If it was a micro VC plus angels, we could get in. If it was a CVC that was doing the deal, we could get in in the angel pocket. And so it helped us have a, a huge hit rate. And then at the same time, you have to choose your investment ticket correctly, choose your fund size correctly, because both are linked. Because, I mean, it gets to a point where if you have 100 investments or 150 investments, it's very, very, very hard to do. Just because 
just the deal execution, managing kind of like the corporate life of each company, and then finding time to help them, it's super hard. So I think you need to balance all those aspects. You need to balance what's your fund size? Is your ticket size going to give you a good hit rate? Are you going to be able to give the level of support that you want to your founders that will yield the reputation that will bring the deal flow of tomorrow? You need to balance the, all those four criteria and make them work. And it, it's going to be different in each stage. And it's going to be different for each person's strategy and how they want to help companies. But you need to find that right mechanic within your framework. Couldn't agree more, by the way. And I think fund size dictates your strategy. We actually did exactly the same in, in that like reverse engineering. What do we think is a no friction check that optimizes for access? That's where we started optimizing from and took it from there. So uh, lots of lots of great points there. One last that I'd say a lot of investors I've seen in the past, I think, and, and have sometimes missed or is very difficult to track is for the VCs that don't want to do rinse, repeat and start becoming larger and larger and raising larger and larger funds. They, you know, suddenly have to do larger and larger checks and at some point maybe even need. I think the very difficult equation or let's say optimization to think about is, can you start getting, you know, maintaining your win rates while maintaining the quality of deal flow that you have while increasing your check size, right? Because a lot of them end up kind of missing on that part, right? So next up is the quick fire. Quick fire. Eduardo, we have so little time left that I will rush us into the quickfire route. Are you ready for it? Yes, let's do it. First question, what's the most counterintuitive thing you've learned since you started angel investing? You know that hot deal you missed and you can't get over it? I'm happy missing hot deals because it actually means you saw those deals. If you see amazing deals, you're 50% down the way of being a great angel investor. And that's what people don't understand. Like most successful entrepreneurs, VCs, angels worldwide, the list, their anti-portfolio is huge. And that's the way it should be. It means that they're seeing the best deals and <laughs> that they're out there. Second question, what would be your top tips to angels wanting to do more international investments? First of all, go and meet entrepreneurs and angels in that geo. Anthony's very, very good at that and uh, Carmen too. But specifically in Europe, because there's a few countries like France, Spain, Italy, where the level of English of founders is quite poor. Just because, I mean, they didn't have them English in their education, they watched movies dubbed in their own language, and so they didn't have the exposure to English. What I found is that a lot of angels and VCs pass on French deals, for example, just because the founder is 10x less charming, impacting in English than there are in French. So if you, if you actually heard that founder in French, you would probably back him. If you hear him pitch in English, it's really not the same. Even if you look at the VC level, most of the VCs that are doing Series A that have been really, really successful in France have a French partner. I couldn't agree more. And it's such an interesting dynamic in Europe, right? This this fact that we do have language barriers. And we say with the UVC that when we do our uh, European VC podcast, we're 100% dedicated to covering Europe. And for that reason, we cannot stop, you know, wanting to interview someone because their English isn't, you know, perfectly stellar and their story might then be a bit more boring because they're not putting in all the great stories that they actually have. But the fact of the matter is that that guy is the star in the ecosystem. So you have, you, we have to bring the voice of that GP out to everyone. And, and I think that that's such an important mission. And same thing when you want to invest, right? You need to be able to, to go past <laughs> your, your inclination to say, oh, wait, this guy doesn't speak fluid. <laughs> nah, he exactly. can't smart. Exactly. Final question. What advice would you give to your own 10-year younger self if you only had 30 seconds? Well, I would say keep grinding, but find time to disconnect. 
from being an entrepreneur because I think I went too much into the, the grind of when I was an entrepreneur. Buy a lot of Bitcoin and hold it until November 2021 <laughs> and move somewhere where it's sunny and where people are happy as soon as you can. I love that. Where are you now? I'm in Madrid now and I think I, I should have moved should have moved earlier. We haven't had a cloud since January 1st. It's sunny every day and I'm, it just makes me happy. And being happy on a daily basis is amazing. As I said before, super, super appreciative you made it on the pod, Eduardo. It was such amazing fun. Thank you so much for coming and for joining us. It's been great, guys. Seriously, uh, I think what you're doing is, is amazing for the European tech ecosystem. And uh, I, if I can help in any way, feel free and uh, keep encouraging people to kind of like connect and to bring down those barriers we were talking about in Europe to make this continent uh, super successful in the startup scene. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Super Angel Podcast, the go-to podcast for angels backing the next generation of European unicorn founders. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends and join our Angel LP Syndicate at eu.vc. And if you're an angel listening in and wanting to get closer to the European angel scene, please do not hesitate to reach out to us. We'd love to connect and see how we can play together. And now, some words from our beloved sponsor. Vaban from Carter is the easiest way to launch and run your syndicate. Our end-to-end platform automates your back office so you can focus on the things that matter, supporting the next generation of entrepreneurs and building your network. Angel investors are the fuel to innovation, and we've created the Atom SPV to allow for more deals, more ownership, and less fees. Backed by Carter, the leading fintech infrastructure company, will be with you all from fundraising to exit. Investors on our platform have raised over $2.5 billion in global investments for companies including Revolut, Bolt, and SpaceX. I've been touched by an angel, girl.